It is Easter Sunday. Are you excited? A little bit, right? We're excited. It's good, especially after we've sung a few songs. We've heard the truth recited for us in a poem. We've been able to engage with God. But the reality is that as much as we're excited, it's a good thing that it's Easter. And we're happy. We recognize that. We're not as excited as maybe we should be, are we? There's lots of reasons for that. There's just the reality of living in a fallen world and all the conflicting things that happen in our hearts. We're complex beings. We're not simple. There's lots of things that affect our emotions, that change our affections. But the truth is that we find ourselves in a moment in society where we are facing an uncertain economic future. That weighs heavy on on lots of us with regards to our jobs, our employment, our investments. We're facing another lockdown which just carries with it. We've, We've got enough time and enough experience with lockdowns now to know that it carries with it emotional suffering. It does bring with it negative mental health effects and we have to wrestle with those realities. At the same time, acknowledging that deaths are rising, cases are rising, hospitalizations are rising, and our healthcare system is stressed and burdened, and the workers in the hospitals are stressed and burdened. And in the meantime, churches increasingly are beginning to fight with one another about how we're supposed to respond to all these things. Apart from just the nature of COVID and its effects explicitly, there's implicit things that happen to us as well. Lots of you have been talking to me over the last few weeks about different things that are happening. Maybe it's stress in your home life, just relationships that over the past year you've been together so much that you're experiencing tensions that you did not experience before this past year. Maybe it's work projects that have been piling up. They've been becoming increasingly complex or difficult because of logistical things. Some of you are facing tough decisions with regards to immigration processes and where are we going to live and where is my family going to grow up? All kinds of huge decisions that just weigh on us and burden us. My suggestion, my proposition for us this morning is this. That what we need this morning, yes, every morning, yes, especially in this moment, what we need is a vision of the glorious Christ. A vision of him, a glimpse of Christ in his glory will strengthen and sustain us for all that we face. We see this in Matthew chapter 17 as Matthew works this out for us. The first thing that we see from this text in these 13 verses that we're looking at this morning is this. Life here is lived in the shadow of suffering. Life in this world is lived in a shadow, under the shadow of suffering. So it's this um, conflicting season in Canada of spring where it you know, the sun just constantly has this existential crisis where it looks so nice and so warm, but it gives no heat. Like, what is it doing up there anyway? But, but, but sometimes it gives a little bit of heat. And, and so you get, that, you, know, you get up courage. If you're like me, I don't like going out in the cold, but you get up courage to go out because it looks so nice. And you go out and the sun warms you a little bit. But if you're like me, you like to hike. So maybe you hike into the woods. And as you go into the forest and the sun is cut off, there is no heat in that forest.
force. Like the sun has not done anything to warm up that forest and you are immediately frozen. We live in a shadow that brings a darkness and a coolness to all of our experience. This is what Jesus is laying out for the apostles. This is particular for him in this season, but we're going to tease it out and see how it applies to us as well. Look at verse 9. So start towards the end of our passage. Jesus said, or, or Matthew says this, as they were coming down from the mountain, so after this glorious vision where it looks like the sun is, is shining bright and things should be warming up, Jesus says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? There's prophetic tradition that says one like Elijah, one in the Elijah tradition is going to come before the Christ. So Jesus, if you are the Christ, we've just seen you glorified, then why do they say Elijah must come first? This is the truth that they're wrestling with. He answered them, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. He's going to explain. He's talking about John the Baptist. And they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. Do you remember what they did to John the Baptist? They rejected him, and eventually they cut off his head. They did to him whatever they pleased. So also, as John the Baptist, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Um, you can have all kinds of favorite sandwiches, and that's okay with me. Whatever your favorite sandwich is is not a, a problem to me, unless you say it's open-faced, because then I'm going to have a fight with you, because an open-faced sandwich is not a sandwich. A sandwich has two pieces of bread. It is enclosed. Otherwise, it's just a meal that you slopped on top of a piece of bread. That's all it is. A sandwich has two. And, and, and what Jesus is doing here in his teaching, what Matthew's doing as he constructs this narrative for us, is he is sandwiching the, the, the transfiguration, this vision of glory, in between two slices of suffering, two predictions of suffering. Remember what we saw last week in chapter 16 and verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. This is how this whole conversation started that led to the transfiguration. And Jesus didn't just say at that point that he was going to suffer. He also teased it out for the disciples as well. Look at what he said in chapter 16 and verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What Jesus is doing is he's trying to make clear for those who will hear him that the way of following Jesus, the path of righteousness, is always going to be a path of hardship and suffering. It was for Jesus, so it will be for his disciples. But both Jesus and his disciples follow in the tradition of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist follows in the tradition of Elijah and the prophets. This has always been the way for God's people, and so it continues to be now. No matter which way you slice it, the bread is suffering, it is rejection, it is persecution, it is sorrow. From here on out in Matthew's gospel, it's going to be a forward look to the cross. Everything is leading towards the suffering, the rejection, the death of Christ. As we've said, we feel the weight 
of living life in the shadows of suffering even now, don't we? There's a, there's a, a false way we can think about this that I've seen circulated that says something like Christians wearing masks is a form of oppression and persecution. I, I want to be clear, it is not. To simply participate in something that's for the good of our society is just being a citizen. But nevertheless, there is something that feels ominous through all of this for Christians, isn't there? I was reading the instructions that were changed this week for churches, and I noticed something that I've seen. It's been there the whole time. It hasn't changed, but it's just taken on greater weight as you read it. There's a statement in the regulations that what's permitted for churches, and they specify that churches have the permission of the government to do virtual services online. Now, you could kind of laugh that off. Oh, they just mean you're allowed to do that. But there's something ominous at this point about the idea that the government would have to grant us permission to do something online, isn't there? There's something strange that just feels weighty and heavy about the whole situation. And then you add on to that the direction of our culture. For teachers who are laboring in their life's work, for the good of the children of our province and our city who are facing tough choices about what they will say and not say in their classroom that could cost them their jobs. For doctors and healthcare professionals who are facing the choice seemingly at this point inevitably of either killing or referring for murder their patients who they previously had sworn to protect. For employees, whatever your job, when you face that moment where you do not want to go along with the moral revolution, the moral and social and cultural values that your company is putting forward, we feel the weight is heavy Friends, what I want to say is simply this. Life in the shadow of suffering is not new with us. There is nothing strange in all of this. This is the path that Christ has always called his disciples to. All of our life is lived in the shadow of suffering. It's lived in the shadow, the the looming threat of pain. All the way back to our first father and our first mother. When Adam and Eve sinned and God gave the curse and he said to man, he said, you are going to work the ground. It's with the sweat of your brow. It's with pain that you will bring forth bread. You will provide for your family, but it will be in pain and there will be thorns and there will be thistles. This is what your life will be. He said to the woman, you will bring forth children, but it will be out of hard labor. It will be out of pain. It will be out of sweat. It is in the shadow of suffering that all of our life and all of our labor for the Lord is carried out. That's true for all of us. And as Jesus here teaches, it is true for none more than him. If for us the ground brings forth thorns, the reality is for our king that his crown 
will be thorns. He is the one who will suffer the curse ultimately. Jesus knows your suffering. He knows the fear. He knows the burden of living under the shadow, the imminent threat of suffering to come. And he sympathizes with us in our weakness. He is a compassionate and merciful high priest. That's why he tells us these things ahead of time, so that we know what's coming. This is not abnormal. He sympathizes. He cares. But he doesn't simply sympathize. One of us, I I could try to sympathize with you, but there's nothing I could actually do. There's no hope I could actually give you in the midst of it. Jesus is not merely a sympathizer. Here's the second thing that Matthew wants to show us here. It's that glory, glory brightly shines from the face of Jesus. Glory shines brightly from his face. To those who are walking in the shadow of suffering, Jesus wants to reveal his glory. There was a time uh, many years ago now, but I I remember it vividly. I I had gone to our family cottage um, on a whim because I was single, that's why I said many years ago, and you could do things on a whim. And so I, I went, and, and I got there in time to see the sunset, and I, I wanted to see it. We, we get glorious sunsets at the cottage because the sunset's directly across the water, but there was a specific place I wanted to see it from to take it in, in all of its glory. And so um, the way to get there, it's a couple kilometers away, but uh, it's along this path, these old train tracks. And so I got up on the train tracks and I started running, but the train tracks cut through a forest. And, and so when you're going through the forest, again, you're, you're surrounded by shadows, you're surrounded by darkness. And I, I knew that the sun was out there. I knew that the sun was glorious and beautiful and I wanted to see it. And I was running to try to get there in time to see it, but I couldn't see it in the moment. But then something amazing happened. As I was going along the way, I was passing alongside the lake. And as I was going, like arrows shooting through the forest, you could catch beams of light shining through, flashing, just glimpses of the glory that awaited This is exactly what our Savior is doing for his disciples. Though they dwell in the shadows of looming suffering, he is giving them a glimpse of the glory that they long to see. He had promised this at the end of chapter 16. Do you remember what he said in verse 28? Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now he's going to immediately, partially fulfill that promise by showing them, some of them, something of his glory, the glory of his kingship. Chapter 17 and verse 1, after six days, Matthew deliberately connects these two things, the promise of Jesus that they would see him coming, and then these six days, the coming of Jesus in his transfiguration. After six days, he took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured, transformed. He was, he was, I don't know what the word is, metamorphosized. Is that the right way to say the word? He was changed before them. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them 
Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. I love Peter's ability to state the obvious. This is a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's a very good thing. If you wish, he says, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. This is the experience we always have, right? If something is sweet, if something is good, if, if a moment seems perfect, you just want it to last forever. Peter wants to draw the moment out. So he says, I don't know, let's make tents. We'll call it a slumber party, like whatever. Let's just keep this thing going. Verse five, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. See, God interrupts him. He's like, Peter, don't talk anymore. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the clouds said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. This isn't just a vision like something you see with your eyes. This is a completely immersive experience. They see it. They're surrounded by this bright cloud. A voice comes out of the cloud. The voice of God himself speaking on this mountain. They are terrified. They fall on their faces. But Jesus in his mercy came and touched them saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is a stunning picture. A stunning vision. Can you picture it? As we read it, do you have a picture of what it would be like in your mind to see Christ glorified with light shining from his face so much so that a human body can't contain this glory. It's it's beaming out of him. It's transforming his very clothes. Anything that touches him is transformed into light. Something similar to this happened to Moses. Remember, Moses went up the mountain to receive the revelation. And Moses, when he's up the mountain, he asked to see God's glory. And so God hides him in a cleft of the rock because you can't look at it and live. So he hides him in the cleft of the rock and he causes his goodness to pass over him. And, And Moses looks up and sees the trailing edges of the goodness of God that had passed by. And do you remember what happened to Moses then? His face shone. His face shone as a reflection of something of the glory that he'd beheld. But when Jesus' face shines, it's not a reflection. It is the source. He is the one who is glory. Moses went up a mountain and asked to see the glory. Jesus goes up the mountain to show everyone he is the glory of God. This is a miracle, right? Or is it? Should we say it's miraculous what happened to Jesus? If you do, Charles Spurgeon would argue with you. This is what he says. As if it was a great wonder. Like, as if it's a wonder. The transfiguration of Christ could scarcely be called miraculous, for it is according to the nature of Christ that his face should shine. And his very raiment, his clothes become glorious. 
This isn't strange. This is the most normal thing you could possibly imagine. Of course Christ is glorious. What's miraculous is not anything that's happened to him. What's miraculous is what's happened to the disciples, that for a moment they can see him for who he actually is. I heard a number of years ago John Piper give this illustration that I found particularly helpful he, he was talking about the difference between a, a microscope and a telescope. Maybe you've heard him talk about it. He says, they both do fundamentally the same thing. They take something that we can't see with a naked eye, and they help us to see it, to perceive it. But he says, that the difference is this. A microscope takes something that's actually quite small and makes it bigger than it is so that we can see it. What a telescope does is it takes something that's actually great and glorious, something that's grand and distant, something that's wonderful, something that we can't see because of how great and glorious it actually is and brings it near to us to help us see it a little more closely for what it actually is. It's not making it something it's not. It's helping us to see it a little closely, a little more closely for what it is. That is precisely what's happening in the transfiguration. Here is Jesus, the king of all glory, full of beauty and splendor, full of majesty and honor. And for a moment, these three disciples catch a glimpse just a glimpse of their king. Not becoming what he wasn't, but being seen for who he is. Not simply beautiful, but righteous. Did you hear the words of the Father? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. All that Jesus has done is righteous. All that it is, he has done is just. All of his works are pleasing and acceptable to the Father. Here is a righteous king. Not simply righteous or glorious or beautiful. He is authoritative. All along we've seen Matthew trumpeting Jesus' authority. Where does he get this idea? Jesus, we've seen him claim authority, right, in his teaching. You've heard that it was said in the Law and the Prophets, but I say to you, you you've seen him with his authority claim to have the authority to forgive sins. You've seen him with his authority raise the dead. You've seen him with his authority heal the lame. You've seen him with his authority calm the wind and the waves with the word. But is it all actually true or is it smoke and mirrors? Is is it just a show? The voice of the Father says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. You have Moses and Elijah a representation of the law and the prophets, and Peter wanting to magnify Jesus and put him on a glorious level, an esteemed level with Moses and Elijah, says, let's build three tents. And the Father says, you have fundamentally misunderstood. This is my son. Listen to him. If the voice of the Father could speak to you about the son this morning, he would emphasize the authority of Christ as king. Do you listen to Christ as king? 
Peter, as we said, he wants this moment to last. Let's build some tents. Obviously, it can't last. It's just a glimpse. He's passing light, passing between trees. So Jesus touches him. Rise, have no fear. You get the look for now, and that is all. It's not now in this moment that Jesus is less glorious. It's just that the revelation for the disciples for the moment has ceased. They're running in the shadows of the forest of this broken, hurting world. But for a moment, they've caught a glimpse, the glorious sunlight shining through. If you've seen Christ, if you understand who Jesus is in his glory, in his resurrection, in his authority, are you obedient to him? If you heard the voice of the Father say to you this morning audibly, listen to my son, would there be things in your life that you would need to change? Does this vision, does this glimpse of the glory of Christ, does it give you a greater appreciation of the cross? Understand this. In the same moment, Jesus is revealing his glory, but also predicting his sufferings, such that we're supposed to understand that the one who goes to the cross to be stripped naked and humiliated and mocked, the one who will die bearing the wrath of the Father, is actually the glorious one who should have bright clothes, who should be esteemed by all creation, who should have the unmitigated and unmeasured pleasure of the Father poured out on him. But he left that to bear your guilt and shame and suffer and die in your place. Does this change the way you view the cross? Have you understood the love, the condescending and humiliating and dying love of Christ for you? Have you turned from your sins to embrace that love? Have you trusted in Christ? Glory shines brightly from his face, even while we live in this broken and shadowy world, which leads to the last thing as we tie these things together is simply this, a vision of his glory, a vision of that glory of Christ is what will sustain us now in the darkness. Why do we get the glimpses? Why was it so memorable for me? Why was it so inspiring for me to see glimpses of light shooting through the trees? Because it sustained me. It reminded me of what I was running for, what I was trying to get to, the fullness of which I had yet to see. That's exactly the point of the transfiguration for the disciples and for us. Here is a glimpse of the glory that is yet to be revealed in its fullness for us. Verse 10, the disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah does come. He will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. He is reminding them of the suffering to come, the truth of the shadows, even as he has shown them the truth of his glory. How can you know 
This is the question, right? How can you know that when all we see is shadows and trees and darkness, that the sun still shines and will shine on the other side of the trees? How do we know that it's the glory that's lasting and not the suffering? Look at verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision. You, you don't understand it yet. You don't have fullness of revelation yet. You don't understand what this means yet. Well, when will they understand? When will they get it? When will they be able to tell the world about the glory of Christ? When will they have categories? When will it make sense? Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Part of me wonders, as the disciples came down from the mountain and then went about their business, as, as, as they saw the rejection and the suffering of Christ, as Christ died and then on the Friday night and the Saturday remained in the tomb, did they wonder if what they saw was real? Did they begin to question if it was actually true? Was he really glorious? Was God really pleased with him? Could we really trust him? Did he really speak authoritatively? The empty tomb thunders, yes. Here is one who overcomes the grave with a glory that cannot be held by death or the tomb. He triumphs over all. All of a sudden, everything that came before makes sense in light of the resurrection. Of course he can trample the wind and the waves because he's going to trample death. The glorious Christ of the resurrection has a glory that cannot be dimmed, faded, shielded. One day it will be seen. The last enemy to be destroyed was death, and he has overcome the grave. Friend, do you actually believe that? Like actually, like believe it the way you believe you're gonna get out of here at some point today and you're gonna go home and you're gonna go about your day. Do you believe it like you believe you're gonna show up at work at some point this week, you're gonna continue to do your job or go back to school? Do you believe that Jesus Christ took on flesh and suffered and died as a man, but on the third day he actually had a heart that had stopped beating, that started beating. There was actually blood that had stopped flowing, that started flowing. There were lungs that started breathing. There were brain cells, there were synapses that started firing, that once were still. Here was a man who overcame the grave. If we actually believe this, then we need to believe that there is nothing that can stop him now. Do you need to be sustained in your suffering? Do you need to be sustained with the looming shadows of suffering? Friends, what we need more than ever is a vision of Christ, resurrected, glorious, triumphing over the grave, because here's the thing, he only ever grows 
in glory. So, so John, who, who saw him here at the transfiguration, writes this in Revelation chapter 1. Here's what's true about Jesus. John's going to see him later. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. These are the churches. I love this vision. The, the glorious Christ, where does he dwell? He dwells in the midst of his churches. And when, when they are suffering, that's when he's seen in the midst of his churches. I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice, I love this, his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, his face, face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John still can't handle it. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. This is our glorious Savior, crucified but resurrected, triumphing and returning, reigning and shining in glory. And whatever glimpses we have now, friend, are only glimpses. The fullness, the fullness is yet for us to see with an eternity to explore and try to comprehend the beauty of the glory of our Christ. Yeah, we've got some shadows we're walking through this Easter, but the truth of his glory remains. The sun still shines on the other side of the shadows, friends. May God give us grace to catch glimpses of his glory now that will never be diminished or shaded. Let's pray.